continuing in our reading of Thomas Watson's book, first published in 1692, The Ten Commandments. The Second Commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20, 4 through 6. Point 1. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. In the first commandment, worshipping a false god is forbidden, in this, worshipping the true God in a false manner. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. This forbids not making an image for civil use, whose image and superscription they say unto him it is Caesar's, Matthew 22, 20 and 21. But the commandment forbids setting up an image for religious use or worship, nor the likeness of anything, etc., all ideas, portraitures, shapes, images of God, whether by effigies or pictures, are here forbidden. Take heed lest ye corrupt yourselves and make the similitude of any figure. Deuteronomy 4:15 and 16. God is to be adored in the heart, not painted to the eye. Thou shalt not bow down to them. The intent of making images and pictures is to worship them. No sooner was Nebuchadnezzar's golden image set up, but all the people fell down and worshipped it. Daniel 3, 7. God forbids such prostrating ourselves before an idol. The thing prohibited in this commandment is image worship. To set up an image to represent God is debasing him. If anyone should make images of snakes or spiders, saying he did it to represent his prince, would not the prince take it in disdain? What greater disparagement to the infinite God than to represent him by that which is finite, the living God by that which is without life, and the maker of all by a thing which is made? Firstly, to make a true image of God is impossible. God is a spiritual essence, and being a spirit, he is invisible. John 4:24 Ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake with you out of the midst of the fire Deuteronomy 4:15 How can any paint the deity can they make an image of that which they never saw as it is said there is no depicting the invisible Ye saw no similitude it is impossible to make a picture of the soul or to paint the angels because they are of a spiritual nature much less can we paint God by an image who is an infinite uncreated spirit secondly to worship God by an image is both absurd and unlawful firstly it is absurd and irrational for the workman is better than the work he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house Hebrews 3 3 if the workman be better than the work and none bow to the workman how absurd then is it to bow to the work of his hands is it not an absurd thing to bow down to the king's picture when the king himself is present? It is more so to bow down to an image of God when God himself is everywhere present. 
Secondly, it is unlawful to worship God by an image, for it is against the homily of the church which runs thus, The images of God our Savior, the Virgin Mary, are of all others the most dangerous. Therefore the greatest care ought to be had that they stand not in temples and churches. So that image worship is contrary to our own homilies and affronts the authority of the Church of England. Image worship is expressly against the letter of Scripture. Ye shall make no graven image, neither shall ye set up any image of stone to bow down unto it. Leviticus 26.1 Neither shalt thou set up any image which the Lord thy God hateth. Deuteronomy 16.22 Confounded be all they that serve graven images. Psalm 97.7 Do we think to please God by doing that which is contrary to his mind, and that which he has expressly forbidden? Thirdly, image worship is against the practice of the saints of old. Josiah, that renowned king, destroyed the groves and images in 2 Kings chapter 23. Constantine abrogated the images set up in temples. The Christians destroyed images at Basel, Zurich, and Bohemia. When the Roman emperors would have thrust images upon them, they chose rather to die than deflower their virgin profession by idolatry. They refused to admit any painter or carver into their society because they would not have any carved statue or image of God. When Seraphion bowed to an idol, the Christians excommunicated him and delivered him up to Satan. Use 1. The Roman Catholic Church is reproved and condemned, which, from the alpha of its religion to the omega, is wholly idolatrous. Romanists make images of God the Father, painting Him in their stained glass windows as an old man, and an image of Christ on the crucifix, and, because it is against the letter of this commandment, they sacrilegiously blot the commandment out of their catechism, and divide the tenth commandment into two. Image worship must needs be very impious and blasphemous, because it is giving the religious worship to the creature which is due to God only. It is vain for papists to say they give God the worship of the heart, and the image only the worship of the body, for the worship of the body is due to God as well as the worship of the heart. And to give an outward veneration to an image is to give the adoration to a creature which belongs to God only. Isaiah 42.8, My glory will I not give to another. Question, don't the Roman Catholics say they do not worship the image, but only use it as a medium through which to worship God? But Aquinas says not even to a statue of Christ is any reverence owed, since it is only a piece of carving. Firstly, where has God bidden them to worship him by an effigy or image? Who hath required this at your hand? Isaiah 1, 12. The papists cannot say so much as the devil. It is written when tempting our Lord. Secondly, the heathen may bring the same argument for their gross idolatry as the papists do for their image worship. What heathen has been so simple as to think gold or silver or the figure of an ox or elephant was God? These were emblems and hieroglyphics only to represent him. They worshipped an invisible God by such visible things. To worship God by an image, God takes as done to the image itself. 
question, but say the Romanists' images are layman's books, and they are good to put them in mind of God. One of the popish councils itself affirms that we might learn more by an image than by long study of the Scriptures. Habakkuk 2.18, What profiteth the graven image, the molten image, and the teacher of lies? Is an image a layman's book? Then see what lessons this book teaches. It teaches lies. It represents God in a visible shape who is invisible. For papists to say they make a use of an image to put them in mind of God is if a woman should say she keeps company with another man to put her in mind of her husband. Question, but did not Moses make the image of a brazen serpent? Why then may not images be set up? That was done by God's special command, Make thee a brazen serpent. Numbers 21.8 There was also a special use in it, both literal and spiritual. What? Does the setting up of the image of the brazen serpent justify the setting up of images in churches? What? Because Moses made an image by God's appointment, may we set up an image of our own devising? Because Moses made an image to heal them that were bitten, is it lawful to set up images in churches to bite them that are whole? Nay, that very brazen serpent which God himself commanded to be set up, when Israel looked upon it with too much reverence and began to burn incense unto it, Hezekiah defaced and called it Nehushtan, mere brass, and God commended him for so doing, Second Kings 18. Question, is not God represented as having hands and eyes and ears? Why may we not then make an image to represent Him and help our devotion? Though God is pleased to stoop to our weak capacities and set Himself out in Scripture by eyes to signify His omniscience and hands to signify His power, yet it is absurd from such metaphors and figurative expressions to bring an argument for images and pictures, for by that rule God may be pictured by the sun and the element of fire and by a rock, for he is set forth by these metaphors in Scripture, and sure, the Romanists themselves would not like to have such images made of God. Question, if it be not lawful to make the image of God the Father, yet may we not make an image of Christ, who took upon him the nature of man? No! Epinacius, seeing an image of Christ hanging in a church, break it in pieces. It is Christ's Godhead united to his manhood that makes him to be Christ. Therefore, to picture his manhood when we cannot picture his Godhead is a sin, because we make him out to be but half Christ. We separate what God has joined. We leave out that which is the chief thing which makes him to be Christ. Question, but how shall we conceive of God aright, if we may not make any image or resemblance of Him? We must conceive of God spiritually, first in His attributes, His holiness, justice, goodness, which are the beams by which His divine nature shines forth. Secondly, we must conceive of Him as He is in Christ. Christ is the image of the invisible God, as in the wax we see the print of the seal. Colossians 1.15 Set the eyes of your faith on Christ God man. He that hath seen me, John 14.9, hath seen the Father. Used to take heed of the idolatry of image worship. Our nature is prone to this sin as dry wood to take fire. And indeed, what need of so many words in the commandment, Thou shalt not make any graven image, or 
any likeness of anything in heaven, earth, water, sun, moon, stars, male, female, fish, thou shalt not bow down to them. I say, what need of so many words in the second commandment, but to show how subject we are to this sin of false worship. It concerns us, therefore, to resist this sin. Where the tide is apt to run with greater force, there we had need to make the banks higher and stronger in the creek. The plague of idolatry is very infectious. They were mingled among the heathen and served their idols. Psalm 106, 35 and 36. It is my advice to you to avoid all occasions of this sin. Firstly, come not into the company of idolatrous papists. Dare not to live under the same roof with them or you run into the devil's mouth. John the Divine would not be in the spa where Serinthus the heretic was. Secondly, go not into their chapels to see their crucifixes or hear mass. As looking on a harlot draws to adultery, so looking on the popish gilded picture may draw to idolatry. Some go to see their idol worship. A vagrant who has nothing to lose cares not to go among thieves. So such as have no goodness in them care not to what idolatrous places they come, or to what temptations they expose themselves. But you, who have a treasure of good principles about you, take heed the popish priests do not rob you of them, and defile you with their images. Thirdly, dare not join in marriage with image worshippers. Though Solomon was a man of wisdom, his idolatrous wives drew his heart away from God. The people of Israel entered into an oath and curse that they would not give their daughters in marriage to idolaters. Nehemiah 10. For a Protestant and a Romanist to marry is to be unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14 And there is more danger that the papist will corrupt the Protestant then hope that a Protestant will convert the papist. Mingle wine and vinegar. The vinegar will sooner sour the wine than the wine will sweeten the vinegar. Fourthly, avoid superstition, which is a bridge that leads over to Rome. Superstition is bringing any ceremony, fancy, or innovation into God's worship, which he never appointed. It is provoking God, because it reflects much upon His honor, as if He were not wise enough to appoint the manner of His own worship. He hates all strange fire to be offered in His temple. Leviticus chapter 10. A ceremony may in time lead to a crucifix. They who contend for the cross in baptism, why not have the oil, salt, and cream as well, the one being as ancient as the other? They who are for altar worship and will bow to the east, may in time bow to the host. Take heed of all occasions of idolatry, for idolatry is devil worship. Psalm 106, verse 37, If you search through the whole Bible, there is not one sin that God has more followed with plagues than idolatry. The Jews have a saying that in every evil that befalls them, there is an ounce of the golden calf in it. Hell is a place for idolaters, for without our idolaters, Revelation 22:15, one calls the devil a rejoicer at idols because the image worshippers help to fill hell. Use three, that you may be preserved from idolatry and image worship. 
Firstly, get good principles that you may be able to oppose the gainsayer. Whence does the Romanist religion get ground? Not from the goodness of their cause, but from the ignorance of their people. Secondly, get love to God. The wife that loves her husband is safe from the adulterer, and the soul that loves Christ is safe from the idolater. Thirdly, pray that God will keep you. Though it is true there is nothing in an image to tempt, for if we pray to an image it cannot hear, and if we pray to God by an image he will not hear, yet we know not our own hearts or how soon we may be drawn to vanity if God leaves us. Therefore pray that you not be enticed by false worship or receive the mark of the beast in your right hand or forehead. Pray, hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. Psalm 117, Lord, let me neither mistake my way for lack of light, nor leave the true way for want of courage. Fourthly, let us bless God, who has given us the knowledge of his truth, that we have tasted the honey of his word, and our eyes are enlightened. Let us bless him that he has shown us the pattern of his house, the right mode of worship, that he has discovered to us the forgery and blasphemy of the Romish religion. Let us pray that God will preserve pure ordinances and powerful preaching among us. Idolatry came in at first by the want of good preaching. The people began to have golden images when they had wooden preachers. Point two, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. The first reason why Israel must not worship graven images is because the Lord is a jealous God. The Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14. Jealousy is taken firstly in a good sense, as God is jealous for his people, Secondly, in a bad sense, as he is jealous of his people. Firstly, in a good sense, as God is jealous for his people. Thus saith the Lord, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. Zechariah 1.14 God has a dear affection for his people. They are his delight. Isaiah 62.4 they are the apple of his eye, Zechariah 2.8, to express how dear they are to him and how tender he is of them. It is said nothing is dearer than the apple of the eye. They are his spouse adorned with jewels of grace. They lie near his heart. He is jealous for his spouse, therefore he will be avenged on those who wrong her. The Lord shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. Isaiah 42.13 What is done to the saints, God takes as done to himself. 2 Kings 19.22 And the Lord will undo all that afflict Zion. I will undo all that afflict thee. Zephaniah 3.19 Secondly, Jealousy is taken in a bad sense, in which God is jealous of his people. He is so taken in this commandment, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. I am jealous, lest you should go after false gods, or worship the true God in a false manner, lest you defile your virgin profession by images. God will have his spouse to keep close to him, and not go after other lovers. Thou shalt not be for another man. Hosea 3.3 He cannot bear a rival. 
Our conjugal love, a love joined with adoration and worship, must be given to God only. Use 1. Let us give God no just cause to be jealous. A good wife will be so discreet and chaste as to give her husband no just occasion of jealousy. Let us avoid all sin, especially this of idolatry or image worship. It is heinous, after we have entered into a marriage covenant with God, to prostitute ourselves to an image. Idolatry is spiritual adultery, and God is a jealous God. He will avenge it. Image worship makes God abhor a people. They moved him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel. Isaiah, Psalm 78, 58 and 59. Jealousy is the rage of a man. Proverbs 6:34. Image worship enrages God. It makes God divorce a people. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife. Hosea 2, 2. Jealousy is cruel as the grave, Song of Solomon 8, 6. As the grave devours men's bodies, so God will devour image worshippers. Used to, if God be a jealous God, let it be remembered by those whose friends are idolaters and who are hated by their friends because they are of a different religion and perhaps their Support cut off from them. Oh, remember, God is a jealous God. Better to move your parents to hatred than move God to jealousy. Their anger cannot do you so much hurt as God's. If they will not provide for you, God will. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Psalm 27, 10. Point 3. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Here is the second reason against image worship. There is a twofold visiting. There is God's visiting in mercy. God will surely visit you. That is, He will bring you into the land of Canaan, the type of heaven. Genesis 50, 25. Thus God has visited us with the sunbeams of His favor. He has made us swim in a sea of mercy. This is a happy visitation. There is God's visiting in anger. Shall I not visit for these things? That is, God's visiting with the rod. Jeremiah 5, 9. What will ye do in the day of visitation? That is, in the day when God shall visit with his judgments. Isaiah 10, 3. Thus God's visiting is taken in this commandment, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. That is, punishing iniquity. Observe here three things. First, sin makes God visit. Visiting iniquity. Sin is one cause why God visits with sickness, poverty, etc. If they keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgressions with the rod. Psalm 89, 31, 32. Sin twists the cords which pinch us. It creates all our troubles. Sin is the gall in our cup, the gravel in our bread. Sin is the Trojan horse, the phaeton that sets all on fire. It is the womb of our sorrows and the grave of our comfort. God visits for sin. Point two, one special sin for which God visits is idolatry and image worship. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers, most of God's poisoned arrows have been shot among idolaters. 
Go now unto my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it. Jeremiah 7.12 For Israel's idolatry God suffered their army to be routed, their priests slain, the ark taken captive, of the return of which to Shiloh we never read any more. Jerusalem, the most famous metropolis of the world, there was the temple, whither the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, Psalm 122.4, but for the high places and images that city was besieged and taken by the Chaldean forces, Second Second Kings twenty-five four. When images were set up in Constantinople, the chief seat of the Eastern Empire, a city which in the eye of the world was impregnable, it was taken by the Turks and many cruelly massacred. The Turks, in their triumphs at that time, reproached the idolatrous Christians, caused an image or crucifix to be carried through the streets in contempt and threw dirt upon it, crying, This is the God of the Christians. Here was God's visitation for their idolatry. God has set special marks of His wrath upon idolaters. At a place called Apollicium, there perished by an earthquake 350 persons while they were offering sacrifice to idols. Idolatry brought misery upon the eastern churches and removed the golden candlesticks of Asia. For this iniquity God visits. Thirdly, idolatrous persons are enemies not to their own souls only, but to their children, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. As an idolatrous father entails his land of inheritance, so he entails God's anger and curse upon his children. A jealous husband, finding his wife has stained her fidelity, may justly cast her off and her children too, because they are none of his. If the father be a traitor to his prince, no wonder if all the children suffer. God may visit the iniquity of image worshippers upon their children. Question. But is it not said, Every man shall die for his own sin? The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father? Second Chronicles 25.4, Ezekiel 18.20 How then does God say he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children? Though the son be not damned, yet he may be severely punished for his father's sin. God layeth up his iniquity for his children, Job 21.19. That is, God lays up the punishment of his iniquity for his children. The child smarts for the father's sin. Jeroboam thought to have established the kingdom by idolatrous worship, but it brought ruin upon him and all his posterity. 1 Kings 14. Ahab's idolatry wronged his posterity, which lost the kingdom and were all beheaded. They took the king's sons and slew seventy persons. Second Kings 10.7 Here God visited the iniquity of the father upon the children. As a son catches a hereditary disease from his father, so he catches misery from him. His father's sin ruins him. Use 1 how sad it is to be the child of an idolater. It had been sad to have been one of Gehazi's children who had leprosy entailed upon them. The leprosy of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and to thy seed forever. Second Kings 5.27 So it is sad to be a child of an idolater or image worshipper, for his seed are exposed to heavy judgments in this life. 
God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon their children. Methinks I hear God speak as in Isaiah 14:21, Prepare slaughter for his children for the iniquity of their fathers. Use to what a privilege it is to be the children of good parents. The parents are in covenant with God, and God lays up mercy for their posterity. The just man walketh in his integrity, his children are blessed after him. Proverbs 27, a religious parent does not procure wrath, but helps keep off wrath from his child. He seasons his child with religious principles, he prays down a blessing on it, he is a magnet to draw his child to Christ by good counsel and good example. Oh, what a privilege it is to be born of godly religious parents. One says his mother travailed with greater care and pains for his new birth than for his natural. Wicked idolaters entail misery on their posterity. God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon their children, but religious parents procure a blessing upon their children. God reserves mercy for their posterity. Point 4. Of them that hate me. Another reason against image worship is that it is hating God. Those who worship God by an image hate God. Image worship is a pretended love to God, but God interprets it as hating Him. As it is said, she that loves another man hates her own husband. An image lover is a God-hater. Idolaters are said to go a whoring from God, Exodus 34:15. How can they love God? I shall show that image worshippers hate God whatever love they pretend. Firstly, they who go contrary to his express will hate him. He says, You shall not set up any statue, image, nor picture to represent me. These things I hate. Neither shalt thou set up any image which the Lord thy God hateth. Deuteronomy 16.22 Yet the idolater sets up images and worships them. This God looks upon as hating him. How does the child love his father that does all it can to cross him? Secondly, they who turned Jephthah out of doors hated him, therefore they labored to shut him out of his father's house. Judges 11.7 The idolater shuts the truth out of doors. He blots out the second commandment. He makes an image of the invisible God. He brings a lie into God's worship, which are clear proofs that he hates God. Thirdly, though idolaters love the false image of God in a picture, they hate his true image in a believer. They pretend to honor Christ in a crucifix and yet persecute him in his members. Such hate God. Use 1. This confutes those who plead for image worshippers. They are very devout people. They adore images. They set up the crucifix, kiss it, light candles to it. Therefore they love God. Nay, but who shall be judge of their love? God says they hate him and give religious adoration to a creature. They hate God and God hates them and they shall never live with God whom he hates. He will never lay such vipers in his bosom. Heaven is kept as paradise with a flaming sword that they shall not enter in. He repayeth them that hate him to their face. Deuteronomy 7.10 
He will shoot all his deadly arrows among idolaters. All the plagues and curses in the book of God shall befall the idolater. The Lord repays him that hates him to his face. Used to. Let it exhort all to flee from idolatry. Let us not be among God-haters. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5:21. As you would keep your bodies from adultery, keep your souls from idolatry. Take heed of images. They are images of jealousy to provoke God to anger. They are damnable. You may perish by false devotions as much as by real scandal, by image worship as by drunkenness and whoredom. A man may die by poison as much as a pistol. We may go to hell by drinking poison in the Catholic cup of fornication as much as by being pistoled with gross and scandalous sins. To conclude, God is a jealous God who will admit of no co-rival. He will visit the iniquities of the fathers upon their children. He will entail a plague upon the fathers, upon their children, the posterity of idolaters. He interprets idolaters to be such as hate him. He that is an image lover is a God-hater. Therefore, keep yourselves pure from idolatry. If you love your souls... Keep yourselves from idols. Point 5. Showing mercy unto thousands. Another argument against image worship is that God is merciful to those who do not provoke Him with their images and will entail mercy upon their posterity. Showing mercy unto thousands. The golden scepter of God's mercy is here displayed. Showing mercy to thousands. The heathen thought they praised Jupiter enough when they called him good and great. Both excellencies of majesty and mercy meet in God. Mercy is an innate propensity in God to do good to distressed sinners. God showing mercy makes his Godhead appear full of glory. When Moses said to God, I beseech thee, show me thy glory, I will, said God, show mercy. Exodus 33:19. His mercy is his glory. Mercy is the name by which he will be known. The Lord passed by and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Exodus 34, 6. Mercy proceeds primarily and originally from God. He is called the Father of mercies, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, because he begets all the mercies which are in the creature. Our mercies compared with his are scarcely so much as a drop in the ocean. Question, what are the properties of God's mercy? First, it is free and spontaneous. To set up merit is to destroy mercy. Nothing can deserve mercy or force it. We cannot deserve it nor force it because of our enmity. We may force God to punish us, but not to love us. I will love them freely, Hosea 14, 4. Every link in the golden chain of salvation is wrought and interwoven with free grace. Election is free. He hath chosen us in Him according to the good pleasure of His will. Ephesians 1.4 Justification is free, being justified freely by His grace. Romans 3.24 Say not, I am unworthy, for mercy is free. If God should show mercy only to such as deserve it, 
He must show mercy to none. Second, the mercy which God shows is powerful. How powerful is that mercy which softens a heart of stone? Mercy changed Mary Magdalene's heart, out of whom seven devils were cast. She who was an inflexible adamant was made a weeping penitent. God's mercy works sweetly, yet irresistibly. It allures, yet conquers. The law may terrify, but mercy mollifies. Of what sovereign power and efficacy is that mercy which subdues the pride and enmity of the heart and cuts off those chains of sin in which the soul is held? Third, the mercy which God shows is superabundant, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. Exodus 34, 6. God visits iniquity to the third and fourth generation only, but he shows mercy unto thousands of generations. Exodus 25 and 6. The Lord has treasures of mercy in store, and therefore is said to be plenteous in mercy. Psalm 86, 5. And rich in mercy. Ephesians 2, 4. The vial of God's wrath drops only, but the fountain of His mercy runs. The sun is not so full of light as God is of love. God has mercy of all dimensions. He has depth of mercy. It reaches as low as sinners. And height of mercy, it reaches above the clouds. God has mercies for all seasons, mercies for the night. He gives sleep. Nay, sometimes He gives a song in the night. Psalm 42, 8. He has also mercies for the morning. His compassions are new every morning. Lamentations 3:23. God has mercies for all sorts, mercies for the poor. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, 1 Samuel 2.8. Mercies for the prisoner. He despiseth not his prisoners, Psalm 69.33. Mercies for the dejected. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, Isaiah 54.8. He has old mercies, thy mercies have been ever of old, Psalm 25, 6. New mercies, he hath put a new song in my mouth, Psalm 40, verse 3. Every time we draw our breath, we suck in mercy. God has mercies under heaven, and those we taste, and mercies in heaven, and those we hope for. Thus his mercies are superabundant. Fourth, the mercy of God is abiding. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 103.17 God's anger to his children lasts but a while. Psalm 103.9 But his mercy lasts forever. His mercy is not like the widow's oil which ran a while and then ceased, 2 Kings 4.6, but overflowing and ever-flowing. As his mercy is without bounds, so it is without end. His mercy endureth forever. Psalm 136. Psalm 136. God never cuts off the entail of mercy from the elect. Question. In how many ways is God said to show mercy? First, we are all living monuments of His mercy. He shows mercy to us in daily supplying us. He supplies us with health. Health is the sauce which makes life sweeter. How would they prize this mercy who are chained to a sickbed? God supplies us with provisions, God which fed me all my life long. Genesis 48.15 Mercy spreads our tables and carves for us every bit of bread we eat. We never drink but in the golden cup of mercy. 
Second, God shows us mercy in lengthening out our gospel liberties. 1 Corinthians 16.9 There are many adversaries. Many would stop the waters of the sanctuary that they should not run. We enjoy the sweet seasons of grace. We hear joyful sounds. We see the goings of God in His sanctuary. We enjoy Sabbath after Sabbath. The manna of the Word falls about our tents when in other parts of the land there is no manna. God shows mercy to us in continuing our forfeited privileges. Third, He shows mercy in preventing many evils from invading us. Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. Psalm 3, verse 3. God has restrained the wrath of men and has been a screen between us and danger. When the destroying angel has been abroad and shed his deadly arrow of pestilence, he has kept off the arrow that it has not come near us. For if he shows mercy in delivering us, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, that is Nero, 2 Timothy 4.17, he has restored us from the grave. May we not write the writing of Hezekiah when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness? Isaiah 38.9, when we thought the sun of our life was setting, God has made it return to its former brightness. Fifth, he shows mercy in restraining us from sin. Lusts within are worse than lions without. The greatest sign of God's anger is to give men up to their sins. So I gave them up to their own hearts. Lust, Psalm 81.12. See also Romans chapter 1. While they sin themselves to hell, God has laid the bridle of restraining grace upon us. As he said to Abimelech, I withheld thee from sinning against me, Genesis 26. So he has withheld us from those sins which might have made us a prey to Satan and a terror to ourselves. Sixth, God shows mercy in guiding and directing us. Is it not a mercy for one that is out of the way to have a guide? First, there's a providential guidance. God guides our affairs for us, chalks out the way He would have us to walk in. He resolves our doubts, unties our knots, and appoints the bounds of our habitation. Acts 17:26. Secondly, a spiritual guidance. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. Psalm 73:24. As Israel had a pillar of fire to go before them, so God guides us with the oracles of His Word and the conduct of His Spirit. He guides our heads to keep us from error, and He guides our feet to keep us from scandal. Oh, what mercy it is to have God to be our guide and pilot. For Thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Psalm 31, 3. Seventh, God shows mercy in correcting us. He is angry in love. He smites that he may save. His rod is not a rod of iron to break us, but a fatherly rod to humble us. He for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Hebrews 12.10 Either he will mortify some corruption or exercise some grace. Is there not mercy in this? Every cross to a child of God is like Paul's tempestuous Eurachlidon, the wind which, though it broke the ship, it brought Paul to shore upon the broken pieces. Acts 27, 44. Eighth, God shows mercy in pardoning us. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? Micah 7:18. It is mercy to feed us, rich mercy to pardon us. This mercy is spun out of the bowels of the free grace and is enough to make a sick man well. 
The inhabitant shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. Isaiah 33:24. Pardon of sin is a mercy of the first magnitude. God seals the sinner's pardon with a kiss. This made David put on his best clothes and anoint himself. His child was newly dead, and God had told him the sword should not depart from his house, yet David anoints himself. The reason was that God had sent him pardon by the prophet Nathan. The Lord hath put away thy sin. Second Samuel 12:13. Pardon is the only fit remedy for a troubled conscience. What can give ease to a wounded spirit but pardoning mercy? Offer him the honors and pleasure of the world? It is as if flowers and music were brought to one that is condemned. Question, how may I know that my sins are pardoned? Where God removes the guilt, he breaks the power of sin. He will have compassion. He will subdue our iniquities. Micah 7.19 With pardoning love, God gives subduing grace. God shows His mercy in sanctifying us. I am the Lord which sanctify you. Leviticus 28 This is the partaking of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4 God's Spirit is a spirit of consecration. Though it sanctify us but in part, yet it is in every part. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 It is such a mercy that God cannot give it in anger. If we are sanctified, we are elected. God hath chosen you to salvation through sanctification. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 This prepares for happiness as the seed prepares for harvest. When the virgins had been anointed and perfumed, they were to stand before the king. Esther 2.12 So, when we have had the anointing of God... We shall stand before the King of Heaven. Tenth, God shows mercy in hearing our prayers. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. Psalm 4, 1. Is it not a favor when a man puts up a petition to a king to have it granted? So when we pray for pardon, adoption, and the sense of God's love, it is a signal mercy to have a gracious answer. God may delay an answer and yet not deny. You do not throw a musician money at once because you love to hear his music. God loves the music of prayer but does not always let us hear from him at once. But in due season gives an answer of peace. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. Psalm 66:20. If God does not turn away our prayer... He does not turn away His mercy. Point 11, God shows mercy in saving us. According to His mercy, He saved us. Titus 3, 5, This is the top stone of mercy, and it is laid in heaven. Here, mercy displays itself in all its orient colors. Mercy is mercy indeed when God perfectly refines us from all the lees and dregs of corruption, when our bodies are made like Christ's glorious body, and our souls like the angels. Saving mercy is crowning mercy. It is not merely to be freed from hell, but enthroned in a kingdom. In this life we desire God rather than enjoy Him, but what rich mercy will it be to be fully possessed of Him, to see His smiling face, and to lay us in His bosom. This will fill us with joy unspeakable and full of glory. First Peter 1.8 I shall be satisfied when I awake. 
with thy likeness, Psalm 17:15. Use one, let us not despair. What an encouragement we have here to serve God. He shows mercy to thousands. Who would not be willing to serve a prince who is given to mercy and clemency? God is represented with a rainbow around about him as an emblem of his mercy. Revelation 4, 3. Acts of severity are forced from God. Judgment is his strange work. Isaiah 28:21. The disciples, who are not said to wonder at the other miracles of Christ, did wonder when the fig tree was cursed and withered because it was not his manner to put forth acts of severity. God is said to delight in mercy. Micah 7:18. Justice is God's left hand. Mercy is his right hand. He uses his right hand most. He is more used to mercy than to justice. As it is said, God is more inclined to mercy than to punishment. God is said to be slow to anger, Psalm 103, verse 8, but ready to forgive, Psalm 86, 5. This may encourage us to serve him. What argument will prevail if mercy will not? Were God all justice, it might frighten us from him, but his mercy is a lodestone, a magnet to draw us to him. Used to. Hope in God's mercies. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in whose that in those that hope in his mercy, Psalm one hundred forty seven eleven, he counts in his glory to scatter pardons among men. Question but I have been a great sinner, and sure there is no mercy for me. Not if thou goest on in sin and art so resolved, but if thou wilt break off thy sins, the golden scepter of mercy shall be held forth to thee. Let the wicked forsake his way, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. Isaiah 55, 7, Christ's blood is a fountain opened for sin and for uncleanness. Zechariah 13, 1, mercy more overflows in God than sin in us. His mercy can drown great sins as the sea covers great rocks. Some of the Jews who had their hands imbrued in Christ's blood were saved by that blood. God loves to magnify His goodness, to display the trophies of free grace, and to set up His mercy in spite of sin. Therefore, hope in His mercy. Use 3. Labor to know that God's mercy is for you. He is the God of my mercy, the psalmist said in 59.17. A man who was being drowned seeing a rainbow said, What am I the better, though God will not drown the world if I am drowned? So what are we the better, though God is merciful if we perish? Let us labor to know God's special mercy for us. Question, how shall we know it belongs to us? First, if we put a high value and estimate upon it, he will not throw away his mercy on them that slight it. We prize health, but we prize adopting mercy more. That is the diamond ring. It outshines all other comforts. Second, if we fear God, if we have a reverend awe upon us, if we tremble at sin and flee from it as, as Moses did from his rod turned into a serpent, his mercy is on them that fear him. Luke 1.50 
Thirdly, if we take sanctuary in God's mercy, we trust in it as a man saved by catching hold of a cable. God's mercy is to us as a rope let down from heaven. By taking fast hold of this by faith, we are saved. I trust in the mercy of God forever. Psalm 52, verse 8. As a man trusts his life and goods in a garrison, so we trust our souls in God's mercy. Question. How shall we get a share in God's special mercy? First, if we would have mercy, it must be through Christ. Outside of Christ, no mercy is to be had. We read in the old law that none might come unto the Holy of Holies where the mercy seat stood but the high priest. To signify that we have nothing to do with mercy but through Christ our high priest, that the high priest might not come near the mercy seat without blood to show that we have no right to mercy but through the expiatory sacrifice of Christ's blood. Leviticus 16:14 that the high priest might not upon pain of death come near the mercy seat without incense Leviticus 16:13 to show that there is no mercy from God without the incense of Christ's intercession if we would have mercy we must get a part in Christ mercy swims to us through Christ's blood secondly if we would have mercy we must pray for it Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. Psalm 85, 7. Turn thee unto me, and have mercy upon me. Psalm 25, 16. Lord, put me not off with common mercy. Give me not only mercy to feed and clothe me, but mercy to pardon me. Not only sparing mercy, but saving mercy. Lord, give me the cream of thy mercies. Let me have mercy and loving kindness, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercy. Psalm 103, verse 4. By earnest suitors, be earnest for mercy. Let your wants quicken your importunity. We pray most fervently when we pray most feelingly. Point 6. Of them that love me. God's mercy is for them that love Him. Love is a grace that shines and sparkles in His eye as the precious stone upon Aaron's breastplate. Love is a holy expansion or enlargement of soul by which it is carried with delight after God as the chief good. One defines love a complacent delight in God as our treasure. Love is the soul of religion. Love is a momentous grace. If we had knowledge as the angels, or faith of miracles, yet without such love it would profit nothing. 1 Corinthians 13.2 Love is the first and great commandment. Matthew 22.38 It is so because, if love be lacking, there can be no religion in the heart. There can be no faith, for faith works by true love. Galatians 5.6 All else is but pageantry or a devout compliment. It meliorates and sweetens all the duties of religion. Love makes them savory meat without which God cares not to taste them. Love is the first and great commandment in respect of the excellence of this grace. Love is the queen of graces. It outshines all others as the sun the lesser planets. In some respects, it is more excellent than faith, though in one sense, faith is more excellent. As it unites us to Christ, it puts upon us the embroidered robe of Christ's righteousness, which is brighter than any angels wear. In another sense, it is more excellent 
in respect of the continuance of it. It is the most durable grace, as faith and hope will shortly cease, but charity will remain. When all other graces, like Rachel, shall die in travail, Christian love shall revive. The other graces are in the nature of a lease for the term of life only, but love, true love, is a freehold that continues forever. Thus, love carries away the garland from all other graces. It is the most long-lived grace. It is a bud of eternity. This grace alone will accompany us in heaven question how must our love to God be characterized firstly love to God must be pure and genuine he must be loved chiefly for himself we must love God not only for his benefits but for those intrinsic excellencies with which he is crowned we must love God not only for the good which flows from him but for the good which is in him True love is not mercenary. He who is deeply in love with God needs not be hired with rewards. He cannot but love God for the beauty of His holiness, though it is not unlawful to look for benefits. Moses had an eye to the recompense of reward, Hebrews 11.26, but we must not love God for His benefits only, for then it is not love of God, but self-love. Second, love to God must be with all the heart. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Mark 12.30 We must not love God a little, give him a drop or two of our love, but the main stream must flow to him. The mind must think of God. The will choose him. The affections pant after him. The true mother would not have the child divided, nor will God have the heart divided. We must love him with our whole heart. Though we may love the creature, yet it must be a subordinate love. Love to God must be the highest, as oil swims above the water. Thirdly, love to God must be flaming. To love coldly is the same as not to love. The spouse is said to be sick of love, Song of Solomon 2.5. The seraphims are so called from their burning love. Love turns saints into seraphims. It makes them burn in the holy love to God. Many waters cannot quench this love. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, 
commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.